Welcome to the conversation on the TYT network. Um, well, we've got a real interesting interview for you guys today because this is about something that has happened to a lot of progressive campaigns. Uh, scandalous charges uh, that then fall apart. Uh, it appears to be a common tactic. Uh, we're bringing on Shahid Buttar running against Nancy Pelosi. He has gone through something similar. We also want to talk about his campaign, of course. Shahid, welcome back to the Young Turks. Thanks for having me, Shank. It's great to be with you. Uh, no problem. Uh, so uh, there was two sets of charges against you. One appears to be completely discredited uh, from a person uh, who has told similar stories about completely different people. So I don't want to spend too much time on that. Uh, I, I want to talk about some of your campaign staffers who came out against you uh, and and how DSA in, in Northern California reacted to that. Look, you're for folks who don't know, Shad's clearly the progressive challenger than Nancy Pelosi. He won the primary, he uh, so he got into the general election in California. If two Democrats can be in the general election and they are. So so Shad, uh, what, let's start with what the charges were um, and, and then we'll break them down. So it actually was half a dozen different allegations that my former staff who I replaced after I won the primary have brought forward. And the story has shifted every week or two. First, it was a claim that I was inappropriate with my volunteers. That fell apart immediately. Then it was the claim that you mentioned by the person in Washington who had accused me of acts including murder and human trafficking long before the more recent harassment charge that my former colleagues used to bring their complaints about my campaign strategy into the press. Uh, they've since then alleged that I don't work hard, that I paid too much. They've outed my relationships. Uh, there's been a whole series of expanding accusations. Most recently, they've been claiming online that I was at an event that I wasn't part of, that The Guardian wrote about and also accused me of being at that I wasn't. Uh, so there's sort of a sustained misinformation campaign promoted by uh, basically people who I worked really hard to create opportunities for, and who ultimately, uh, you know, chose to align themselves with the city's progressive establishment instead. So, I think the why is super interesting, but but most folks in the audience don't know the what yet. So, um, what is it that they uh, accuse you of, and then tell us your side of the story. The one thing they've accused me of that I can't disprove, just because it's rooted in their experience is toxic misogyny in the workplace. And I have acknowledged that people have their own experiences and I'm not going to claim to refute anyone's experience. That would you know, be, I think frankly, a reflection of the thing they accused me of. And so I, I acknowledge everyone's experience and I apologize. I have apologized, I'll do it again for any gendered experience that anyone had on my team. Several people have come forward, people who are closer to the campaign than several of my former staff, people who spent more time in the office, people who spent more time on the campaign. And they've affirmed while being silenced by the press that what they observed when I worked with this team was not misogyny, but rather my challenges trying to get a recalcitrant staff to follow campaign direction. And I think some people have a challenge differentiating between conflict and abuse. And this was you know, a, a set of folks, a handful of folks who found their way off the team in the weeks following the primary, uh, no two of them left, uh, only two of them I should say left at the same time. And they presented their concerns in the press as if a dozen people had left at once. That was flatly inaccurate, uh, there's a whole range of inaccuracies. But the allegation of toxic misogyny I think roots in their 
experience. They claim that I berated people. And I certainly never, you know, the only time I would have ever raised my voice was one particular meeting where they disregarded my agenda and had sort of tried to organize all of my closest advisors to wall me off from parts of the campaign so that my staff could run the campaign in their own way. And, you know, that didn't go so well. And it was not long after that that they found their way to other opportunities. But, you know, I wasn't in, uh, I wasn't the character they depicted. I'll say that. And I haven't been, and I'm not. So, Shad, let's get into the details because I think without getting into the details, people then go, I don't know, was it misogynistic or not? Like, so what, what was the, uh, the top? The context of the disagreement, the substantive disagreement. Yeah. What did they want you to do with it, your campaign, and what did you want to do with your campaign? One example here. So the money I'd raised at the time when I hired the staff that I had in the primary phase, the, their goal and their attitude was that we should spend it all on paid canvassers, and that paid canvassers on the phone and knocking on doors would be the way to win the election. And my response was throughout that we can't pay enough people to knock on every door in the city. And the way you get the scale necessary to win a race against the Speaker of the House is to attract an army of people, volunteers, and have the staff coordinate the campaign so that the volunteers are the ones executing it. And my campaign staff had come to my campaign having worked only on local campaigns. You know, my campaign, my former campaign manager, who's been very active in promoting these smears, had come to my campaign having been a canvassing director for a mayoral candidate. And their vision of campaigns was strictly local. So you know, the, the parts of the campaign beyond the city, for instance, the kind of conversation we're having now, this was outside their experience. And the idea of investing in communications outreach, in press outreach, in the infrastructural parts of the campaign was not something they frankly understood. I did all the policy development alone. I had a hard time getting support really for anything, even mobilizing volunteers for events that I'd go to. I often had to do that on my own. And you know, it's just a matter of the staff having their own priorities and frankly not supporting mine. And that's why I found my way to staff who I work with now. And since we made that transition in the months after the primary several months ago, we frankly accelerated dramatically. I think one reason for that is that the colleagues I recruited later these are generally folks who joined us after having worked on Bernie's presidential campaign. They're more experienced, they're more committed, they're certainly more loyal. And, and I think that's demonstrated itself in the results of the campaign attained since. It appears to me that it was disagreement over tactics that they then weaponized to, to smear you as someone who didn't disagree with them based on substance, but disagreed with them because of who they are. And on the surface to me, everybody can make up their own mind, that's absurd. So are you never allowed to disagree with anyone? And how do we get into identity politics battles like that? So if you and I were to disagree, Shad, I'm from a Muslim background, you're South Asian, I'm Middle Eastern. Who wins? Like, I mean, so if we disagree, is it by definition that you're oppressing me or I'm oppressing you? That's the issues here precisely is the extrapolation of individual experience as if to indicate a pattern. As if, just to be clear, I hadn't worked in nonprofits and any number of places over the last 20 years. I've worked with lots of women. And none of them have frankly had an experience of the sort that my former colleagues report, including the women who work with me now. 
uh, you know, the, the press reports about these accusations were so flatly irresponsible, really reducing journalism to stenography. I mean, people didn't check their facts. There were obvious, even internal inconsistencies in the first round of press reports. One of my former colleagues, this is one of my favorite moments in this whole saga, is quoted saying that it took three or four men to convince me to agree with the perspective that a woman had offered on the team. We didn't have three or four men on the campaign team. But the lie was so obvious if anybody just bothered to check their facts. But not a single journalist, the San Francisco Chronicle twice ran stories quoting someone experienced by other people who they have targeted as a predator and not once covering the actual facts here. And it frankly took over a month for the documentary evidence to be covered by the press. And the documentary evidence proves that my former colleagues were promoting a narrative that they knew to be false. They, they wrote a resolution for DSASF predicated entirely on an alleged pattern of inappropriate behavior that never existed. There was no such pattern. My former finance director invented a set of rumors and, and several people came forward after they had been recruited by my staff to back up these lies. And those people who came forward were ignored by the press. Uh, and Took a while for that to come out. In fact, just today, for the first time, Sam Sater on the Majority Report said the name for the first time. Gloria Berry is an elected member of the Democratic County Central Committee here. We met because about a year and a half ago, and she's now elected to that body because a former member of it, mayoral candidate Angela Aliotto, in a meeting dropped the N-word half a dozen times within 30 seconds. And we were both on our feet saying, you have to stop saying this. And I've seen the very same pattern. Of, of disregard for racial inclusion demonstrated even in the organized left in San Francisco groups, several political organizations just presuming judgment. In some cases, affirmatively excluding witnesses and evidence in order to race to judgment. And it's one thing for unethical press statements to amplify accusations. It's another thing for a political club to race to judgment. But when the objects of those judgments are people of color who are falsely accused, the race to judgment and the unethical press reporting or the failure to correct the reports when the evidence emerges, all that attains far worse dimensions that I am very disappointed to see in the city that I know and love and aim to represent. Yeah, so there's so many folks here that are culpable in my opinion in several different ways. But by the way, this is very similar to what happened to Alex Morse in Massachusetts. And there, the charges, once they were debunked, were more clearly seen as homophobic, which is what they were to begin with. This campaign, right? I mean, you can correct a smear, but once the smear is out of the bottle, it it does enormous damage, and not just to its targets, right? It wasn't just Alex who was harmed. It's not just me who's harmed. The movement has been harmed, and I think that that's a principle. Not just a movement, frankly, all the movements. You know, the, the Me Too movement was harmed by this, the, the socialist movement was harmed by this, the movement for a Green New Deal was harmed by this. Literally no one was served. I think my former staff might have thought that they would benefit from this somehow, but I don't think anybody will. And I think it's just very unfortunate that people would resort to concocting false narratives. I don't think that any time we stray from the truth, we abandon any pretense of doing anything helpful. So Sean, uh, what did the Humanist Report uncover? A set of texts, particularly between one of my former colleagues, a white man, and one of my volunteers, a white woman, in which the, my former colleague was suggesting that I had done something inappropriate. And just to give the story here, uh, there's a, 
uh, in a, a bar in San Francisco called El Rio. We had an event there, I think this might have been uh, January of 2020, so a few months before the primary. And two of my supporters were there, one of whom had done some really clever things using magnets to hang banners and signs in outdoor public locations, banner drops basically, leveraging magnets. And the other volunteer was really intrigued to hear this, said, "Oh, I'd like to join you for one of these banner dropping actions. And so my colleague, my finance director was there. And so I said to my finance director, would you please introduce this volunteer to that volunteer? And for whatever reason, she was reticent, declined. I guess we talked about it several times that night. The rumor that she spread is that I had badgered her that night to get the number of this volunteer so I could give it to a donor so I could hook up sexually the volunteer with the donor so that I could look like the man. That was the rumor. <laughs> and it's, it's written in writing, it appears in a resolution, a DSA resolution that was quoted by The Intercept. Even though the person at the center of the narrative, the woman with who I was supposedly trying to hook up with my donor allegedly, according to my former staff person who now works for Brand New Congress, that rumor was debunked by the person in it. She came forward and said she was disgusted by seeing the press reports. She says in the text messages where my former colleagues are trying to recruit her, this is sick. I'm not going to participate in your smear campaign. And it was after that that all these press reports emerge. After that, that my former colleagues start claiming in DSA that I have this supposed pattern, which I don't. I, I, I haven't harassed anyone, I've certainly never assaulted anyone. Members of my former staff claimed that I had assaulted people. They, they claimed this in writing, even beyond the accusations that they themselves had contrived. And they've since scrubbed their posts to remove all the references to assault, but it just is part of this uh, consistent pattern of shifting accusation. And the fact that the accusations keep shifting, in my mind, is reflective of how relatively credible or not they are. So normally it's the establishment that does the smear and the papers and the media are generally thrilled to go along with it as long as it's a progressive. And, but in this case, and unfortunately in a rising number of cases, uh, folks on the left uh, happily participate in killing off uh, progressive candidates themselves. So their motivations are fascinating and, and maybe we'll get into that. But but in this case, what, what's the current status of the DSA there? Are they still continuing with this nonsense? And, and, and if they are, given the text, given the clear uh, evidence here, what do you think their motivation is? You know, the, the DSA has uh, taken itself off the table. It did rescind its endorsement. Uh, Gloria Berry, the volunteer I mentioned who my former colleagues had recruited and, and come forward to share her experience. She was so uh, frankly triggered by one of the DSA meetings. She wrote publicly afterward that she felt like she'd been at a KKK meeting. And just to be clear, I mean, the things that have been said about me in those spaces have been vicious beyond slanders, amplifying and extending the accusations well beyond. I mean, the accusations themselves are based on fabrication. And at every point in the discussion, someone in DSA amplified and extended them into new zones of supposed patterns. It was incredibly offensive and frankly racist. And it was very disappointing. The only organization in the city that actually investigated the accusations chose to stand by me. And that was the SF Berniecrats. Their membership voted not to rescind their endorsement before the leadership, which had frankly come out against me, they then sort of changed the process and reintroduced a new motion so that club ultimately has recommended me while stepping back from its position endorsing me. But every other organization in the city 
Progressive Democrats of America, the San Francisco Tenants Union, DSA chapters both here and in Silicon Valley, every single one of them, privileged accusation over fact, guilt before innocence. And unfortunately, here ducked into the punch of some really gnarly dynamics unfolding around our society and, and not choosing to look skeptically at accusations even when they targeted a person of color. I'm an immigrant, I'm a brown man, I have a beard, I'm Muslim. There's a trope very well established in our society that Muslim men are supposedly misogynist. And I'm not gonna say that there aren't any, but it's not me. And the facts certainly don't fit. And I would just ask to be judged on the content of my character and my actions instead of on the basis of accusations contrived by people with a political interest in fabricating this narrative. Sean, let, let's give your websites here um, before, but I'm gonna give you my theory and I'm curious what you think. But uh, it, what's the website, Shad, that people can go to? Shahidforchange.us. Shahidforchange.us, okay, and we'll put the link in the description box below. So, uh, and now more than ever, you're gonna need donations of volunteers uh, to, to help fight against the actual political opponent, who is Nancy Pelosi. Uh, the corporate Democrat uh, that has barely fought Donald Trump at all and has been completely ineffectual uh, and fights against every uh, progressive priority. So um, I'm gonna get to that in a second, but look, my sense of what's happening in uh, some parts of the left is twofold. One is honestly, my this is my opinion, young uh, uh, people who feel tremendously entitled that if they're not immediately in charge of all decision making, that it's discrimination against them. And and then secondly, a certain portion of the left who relishes a false sense of moral superiority. And any opportunity that they have to try to establish that at the expense of the movement of character assassinations of good people and, and, and actually trying to effectuate change. They'll take it for their own selfish purposes. I'm saying that broadly, and I'm saying that that's my opinion. I'm curious what your experience is in this case, if though if either of those things apply. It certainly is the case that my former staff felt a great deal of entitlement, tremendous amounts of entitlement. I mean, I put up with things that I don't think any candidate would. You know, I found myself needing to debate people on my team about my own message. You know, people who were wildly presumptuous about their own roles on the campaign. Um, and you know, beyond that sense of entitlement, when you were describing the dynamic around the <clears throat> easier opportunity to tear down than to build, I think that cancel culture can seem very. Uh, it's an easier alternative than to actually building power and shifting the material outcomes facing working people struggling with our compounding civilizational crises. I think. It can be challenging to build power, and I think it's a lot easier to tear someone down. And just to be clear, I am all for accountability. I am an agent of accountability. I'm running for office to hold a bunch of people accountable. I would welcome being held accountable for anything that I do. But I don't think it makes sense to try to hold people accountable for things that they haven't done. And inventing things in the service of dragging people down. I have a hard time of understanding you know, how that serves the left or how that serves any movement. I, again, I can see how it might serve individuals, but I think that even that notion, it reflects the very same inexperience and myopia that I think you know, frankly limited how my former staff were able to contribute to our campaign. And 
among the reasons why I'm so grateful to work with the more experienced, focused, committed, loyal people that I work with now. So um, uh, I've got to ask at least one policy question. California is burning. Uh, and look, your cases, the reason we focus so much on the charges is because it's not just about you, honestly. It's about the whole movement. This is happening all across the country to almost every progressive candidate and any progressive who participates in when it is baseless charges like this. Uh, I think is massively counterproductive. And so people have to recognize the pattern here and, and combat it effectively and in enough time. But right now, California is burning. Uh, what is your plan uh, versus Nancy Pelosi's plan to combat it? The very beginning is the Green New Deal. That's a no brainer. It's an industrial transformation, it's commitment to renewable energy. It would include the federal jobs guarantee that would actually enable the replication of long abandoned indigenous wildfire management techniques, labor intensive work that the market can't incentivize. That's a big part of the recipe. Another part that frankly too many climate justice activists and organizations take their eye off the ball of is restraining our military industrial complex. I say this for two reasons. The Pentagon is our planet's largest institutional source of carbon pollution. And it's also recognized climate catastrophe as a national security threat. And separate from that, what we use it for tends to be resource wars, wars for plunder, often fossil fuels, exacerbating and accelerating the climate crisis. So if we want to get in front of this predictable recurring and frankly, not entirely, but at least not entirely preventable, but at least mitigatable disaster, we have to make the hard decisions to put capital behind instead of in front of our communities. Everyone on the West Coast right now feels it viscerally because we're breathing it. You can feel it in your lungs, it literally hurts. And these are those of us who were lucky enough not to have our homes burned down, lucky enough not to be evacuated. And the people who've lost their homes or been evacuated or in the worst cases lost their lives. They're just a reflection of the failures of our establishment, the longstanding failures of our establishment. And maybe the last thing I'd say here, is that there's a conspicuous difference between the position of GOP climate denialists and corporate Democrats who believe in climate delay. At least for the GOP, you could say that they were consistent. I'm not going to excuse their ignorance, but perhaps it's understandable. But the Democrats, like Nancy Pelosi, claim to believe the science, but then proudly declare their unwillingness to do anything about it. And that's, I think, worse than denial. All right, uh, Shad for Change.US, uh, thank you Shad. Uh, before we go, uh, I, I always wanna ask about the media reaction. So to go back to the, to the issue of the smears, how did the media first report it and have they corrected anything since? Yeah, great question and it reveals a lot. The first round of reports were just basically just libel. And, and this is a point worth raising as a public figure. Uh, I'm limited in terms of defamation or libel claims. The First Amendment doesn't actually protect anyone in the right to protest the government and not be shot in the head by a DHS goon squad member using a left lethal round. But it does protect the right of the press, for instance, to write lies about public figures as long as we can't prove that they knew that the lies were lies at the time that they wrote them. In this case, 
I actually theoretically rise to that. It's that bad. Like the, the actual malice is the standard as a public official that you have to establish to articulate a defamation claim. And that standard was met here in a bunch of different places. It doesn't help me to go to the courts because I have an election. And that's frankly what my focus is on. And so setting that aside, you know, the press after these libelous initial reports blocked and silenced all the evidence. They silenced all the people who came forward to correct the record. None of them until today was even named in the press. And the text messages that proved the knowing falsity of the initial allegations, that took over a month for someone to publish. And The Intercept's a good example here. They, a month after the fact, substantially revised their story to basically you know, lay out the unreliability of the central accusation that my former colleagues had hung their hats on. But even then, they didn't issue a correction. So the only people who read that, in fact, those allegations were fraudulent were the people who found their way back to that story three weeks after it was published. And I would say that there have just been failures of the press throughout all this. We did an analysis this week and figured out that I've gotten 0.7% of the press mentions that the incumbent has. And she hasn't debated anyone in over 30 years. So when the press refuses to cover challengers, I'm not her primary challenger, I'm her general election challenger. It's just she and I on the ballot. And the district, frankly, hasn't had a chance to learn what I'm about because the local press doesn't cover us and there hasn't been a debate. And in the context of that, I'll say next week we're making an announcement about one way we're responding to that media bias. But it's one thing that we're working around and doing everything we can to be creative and reaching the voters and making sure that San Franciscans understand the choice before us this fall. So Sean, I don't know if you've ever gotten a chance to talk to the San Francisco Chronicle or the local television stations, etc. But if you ask them, why aren't you covering the race? Um, or why don't you criticize Nancy Pelosi for not debating her general election opponent, etc. Have you had that chance to ask them? And what is their answer if you have? Have at least with the Chronicle, not the local television stations. And the Chronicle's played an interesting role. On the one hand, it was the only media outlet at all to cover my 2018 campaign when they invited me in to do a podcast episode in the weeks before the election. And in fact, the week before the smear campaign targeting me was launched, the San Francisco Chronicle did run a front page headline above the fold saying Pelosi ignoring calls for debate. That was one headline in July. The elections in November, she still ignores calls for a debate. The need for a debate grows only increasingly clear. It was literally written in the sky across the entire West Coast two days ago. You know, when it was blood red at high noon, I can't imagine a more visible demonstration of the failure of the preceding policy paradigm. And so the, then the smears hit. And the next stories, the next two stories they wrote about us were both quoting someone who has been found since to be not credible by the only investigative journalist to actually examine the claims. And so when the local paper of record is printing quotes by someone who is not credible, accusing me of frankly grave things that I haven't done, I think that raises a real problem. I mean, I, I, it certainly raises a problem for me. The, the people who I think it raises the bigger problem for is the residents of San Francisco, the readers. We rely on the press to tell the truth. And when the press amplifies accusations without considering accuracy, that's a problem beyond the targets of the smears. That's a problem for our democracy. And all I can do is run the best campaign I can to forcefully advocate for my neighbors in my community, to reach as many voters as I can. 
And while the progressive establishment in San Francisco declared their own commitments to be at least in places different than their stated principles, ultimately the voters of San Francisco decide who will be our representative in Washington in the next congressional session. And I'm looking forward to filling that role. Yeah, I think the mainstream media is an abomination. Uh, they they couldn't care less about policy issues, uh, actually informing their audience and their readers. They couldn't care less. Uh, and it's shot. It's not just your race. It's every race uh, where a progressive is all across the country. So last thing, um, you know, we talked about the fires and you mentioned uh, the the problems. But I want to just press on one particular part of that that's so important. You mentioned the Green New Deal. So Nancy Pelosi has dismissed that as the green dream or whatever. So I don't know that Mitch McConnell could have done a better job of being dismissive and derisive towards a progressive policy that would actually fight climate change. Of course, the media has kissed her ass ever since and has never, ever challenged her on that. So um, that's my take, as you can tell. Uh, but I, I'm curious is if there's a way to focus folks on the fact that she's not calling for a vote, even though she's the Speaker of the House and the Democrats control the House. So is have you made any hay out of the fact that it's not the Republicans? It is definitively, as a matter of fact, Nancy Pelosi who is killing the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal and Medicare for all and defunding the police and impeaching the president and charges that would stick. I mean, there's been, I could go on, corporate trade agreements, congressional war powers. I mean, at every point, frankly, Nancy Pelosi has backed up the president, at least on some of those issues like congressional war powers and impeachment. We forced her to show up to some extent. But even in those cases, like impeachment, she, it's all theater, you know. She goes through the theatrical exercise of holding him accountable, while then limiting the process to the weakest charge, and leaving the strongest charges, his corruption, off the table. I'd say similarly with the Green New Deal, she not only derides the Green New Deal as a vision, but she affirmatively hamstrung the new Committee on the Climate Crisis. She denied it policymaking authority. She denied it investigative authority. What is the point of a congressional committee that can't investigate and can't write policy? It's just there for window dressing. That's what Nancy Pelosi ensured. The way that she's punched down at the squad throughout this last congressional session further demonstrates the point. And I'd say most clearly to me, most revealing was her endorsement of Joe Kennedy against Ed Markey in the Massachusetts Senate race. She had previously insisted that incumbents be protected so so assertively so that she promoted and has enforced a blacklist denying Basically, anyone who works with someone like me, challenging an entrenched incumbent, any opportunity to work with the party. And then she goes and endorses a challenger to a sitting incumbent. And not only that, it's a challenger to a sitting incumbent who was the Senate co-sponsor of the Green New Deal. Worse yet, the reason she said she did this is because her family, the powerful Pelosi dynasty, has a close alliance with that family dynasty, the Kennedys. And if there's anything that enrages me more, then corporate Democrats doing the work of Republicans while claiming to stand with we the people of the United States. It is the co-optation of our democracy by family dynasties. We have a constitution with a written repudiation of nobility. And yet we have the Bushes and the Clintons and the Kennedys and the Pelosi's, but that's not democracy. And I frankly am offended by it, independent of the misrepresentation of our proud city by a moderate who has paved the road to the right wing's policies.
Shahid for change.us. Uh, or look, guys, again, this is my opinion, not Shahid's. Mainstream media is a cancer. Uh, how many times have they told people that the person blocking climate change uh, action is not the Republicans? They, they're happy to block it. Mitch McConnell will definitely block it, right? But he hasn't had an opportunity because Nancy Pelosi blocked it first. Uh, and so they just, when they say that she's for taking action on climate change, they're actively lying to their audience, actively lying. And so if you want real change, you have to support progressives like Shahid. If you don't and you want California to burn and you want the rest of the planet to burn, keep voting for incumbents who do absolutely nothing to change it. All right, Shahid, thank you so much for joining us, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Shahid, it's always great to be with you.